0: Dear Bulak listeners, this is Ursula. As many of you may know by now, there's no city that Marsha and I both love as much as Cairo. We lived there a long time. We witnessed the Arab Spring there. Ten years ago this month. But Cairo keeps changing and not in good ways. Not a day passes, it seems, that we don't hear of some new outrage against the city, some demolition or a terrible, inexplicable decision being taken. This week we're rerunning an episode about a book by Mohammed al-Shahid that is a guide to the modern city, in all its innovation and beauty, all the violent change it's witnessed, and all the loss it continues to undergo. Here's thinking of all our friends there.
1: Cairo is an unstable city. It constantly changes its skin, transforming its urban and architectural character in a piecemeal fashion and at a speed that far surpasses the pace of scholarship and documentation. The city tests the permanence of buildings as structures built to last generations often have short shelf lives and are replaced or modified multiple times within the span of a century. Many of Cairo's iconic buildings today replaced earlier structures. The monumental Immobilia Building, 1940, 1940, replaced the Neo-Islamic palace Hotel Saint-Maurice, 1879, that housed the French consulate. The sprawling October Bridge, 1969-1999, to required the demolition of several buildings along its path, such as the Anglican All Saints Cathedral, 1938, a cornerstone of colonial Cairo. The Arab League building, 1955, and the Nile Hilton, 1958, were built on land previously occupied by the army barracks built in 1856 that later housed British troops from 1882 until 1947 when it was demolished. The massive intercontinental hotel replaced the old Semiramis Hotel, 1907. Next door to the Egyptian Museum, 1902, the former headquarters of the National Democratic Party, 1959, originally erected to house Cairo's municipality, was demolished in the early days of conceiving this book. Efforts to save the building from demolition, for its architectural and historical value, failed. The building's modernist design was equated in public discourse with ugliness, a necessary maneuver to facilitate its demolition. Numerous houses, apartment blocks, public buildings, and entire districts built in the span of the 20th century across Cairo's vast geography have been demolished in the past three decades to satisfy the insatiable real estate market currently producing buildings that lack any architectural point of view. Other demolitions make room for piecemeal development projects led by state institutions. Modern structures disappear without record. They casually melt into air as if they had never existed.
0: So that was an excerpt of uh, Cairo Since 1900, an architectural guide uh, by Mohammed shahid And um, reading to you is Marsha Lynx-Qualey. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is the Bulak podcast uh, being recorded between Amman, Jordan, where I am, and Rabat, Morocco, where Marsha is, a podcast about books from uh, about and in the Arab world And the book that we're looking at today is a book about the city where we actually both used to live, Cairo, and a city that um, one never gets tired, I think, of thinking about, caring about, talking about, (laughs) getting upset about. (laughs) Um, uh, This book, um, as the title suggests, is about the city's modern uh, architectural Uh, richness and heritage, much of which uh, is um, very quickly uh, replaced, destroyed, uh, renovated in more or less responsible ways. Um, And the author of this book, uh, Muhammad al-Shahid, is someone who uh, I know from my time in Cairo, I think what um, a first made me know him was probably his blog Cairo Observer, um, which is really, um, yeah, you too. Was that sort of what the first thing? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And it was really, I mean, to this day, it's it's a really quite extraordinary resource. It became a very collective blog with a lot of people contributing. Um, It has a lot of really interesting articles about Architecture and urban planning and development, not just from Egypt, it became really regional with contributions uh, from across the region. Um, And then, uh, but Mohammed is also he's a scholar, he's an architectural historian um he was in Cairo doing research uh for 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 his PhD which he now has um he is teaching as a practitioner in residence at New York University this this year um and uh, he's also a curator who has curated a couple um... Very interesting shows, um, such as a show called Modernist Indignation at the London Design Biennale that was about modernism in Egypt um, and particularly about one um, architect who features in this book uh, and whose legacy was uh, sort of undermined and erased by the Nasser regime. Um, and uh, he also curated the British Museum's Modern Egypt Project, which was a collection of sort of everyday objects from Egypt. Um, so he's, a, I think, really one of the most brilliant and interesting uh, scholars on the built environment uh, in, in Cairo and in Egypt today. And he's put together this book, Um with funding from the Bargill Foundation, uh, you know, and, and assembled with like a big research team and published by AUC Press uh, that is uh, a really lovely, very elegant, very thoughtful uh, resource on the modern uh architecture of Egypt. No, I don't have a hard copy. You, Marcia <laughs> do, right? Like you actually I
1: did. I got mine in I got mine in the mail
0: yesterday. I'm I'm very jealous and I'm gonna wag my finger at AUC Press because I have been sort of I've gone from begging to scolding them <laughs> to harassing <laughs> them for the last couple of weeks about getting me a review copy. And um in the end someone is hand delivering uh, a copy for me from Cairo next week, um, but but so you have the book. So 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 talk a bit about how it's structured and how one can use it because I think you know right. I've only seen the PDF. Well, one of the
1: great right. One of the great things about it is that it's not a coffee table book. I think one way of doing this book would have been to have a gigantic um, sort of lunk of a book that you would. Heft down, or only be able to use as a sort of an in-house, in- indoors resource. This is a light book um, it, with a you know a sort of a sturdy paperback cover, and and it's smaller than than an eight and a half by eleven novel size. It is you know it's not quite pocket size, but it's definitely you could slip it in your purse and carry it around the city in order to. Look at the buildings in Cairo while holding on to this book. So it begins with a um, a series of uh, of historic photos, and the historic photos in this book are one of the most lovely aspects to it. Um, because a number of the buildings that he profiles from the twentieth century have since been demolished. Uh, many of these are historic photos. some some of uh, the buildings he profiles. Are buildings that are still proposed, um, so those are more sort of sketches than than actual photographs, and then some are contemporary photographs. But the historic photos are a really beautiful part of of this uh, product. So it begins with an introduction, an overview uh, of of Cairo as he he asserts a 20th century city. So he's he, you know, of course, Cairo is also a historic city, but he's looking at Cairo and the explosive growth that it underwent mostly in the 20th century, although also in the late 19th century. Um, some of many of these buildings were some of the buildings in the, in the book were constructed. Um, he looks at 226 structures over 120 years. And um it, it so it begins with a, a lovely introduction um that tells us that the last time that there was a book that with an overview of architecture across Cairo was by in 1989 by Tofi Abdel-Gawed, which I think in Cairo years, in how much the city landscape changes year to year is a tremendously long time. Um so so this is the first apparently uh, survey of architecture across Cairo and sort of not just what's, what's um, the beautiful buildings of downtown or the lovely buildings of Heliopolis, but also there are sections on Imbaba and on Nasser city. Um, There are, um, you know, uh, what, what school buildings look like, what, what ordinary how, you know, housing structures look like as well as uh, Aspects uh, unique ar- architectural choices and artistic choices. Um, so after the introduction, you have maps. There's also a very helpful glossary at the beginning, um, because, for instance, while I know what you know, m- m- momluk means, I don't really know what neo Mamluk style. Uh, is or what Neo-Mamluk architecture would be, so there's a very helpful glossary at the beginning of these architectural terms, um, and then each each segment it comes at, by neighborhood. So there's a, a there's a longer segment for downtown, and then there's you know there's Bulak, there's Mohandasin, there's Garden City. E there's a separate one it, for Zemelik from ID. Go
0: ahead. So it's, or yeah, it's organized by neighborhoods and it has a map also that, that helps you like find each, each place. So it
1: seems really... right. So there are some, some beautiful things, especially some of them that you would no longer know what they look like um, from their current external facade uh, that you could use both the map and the book to go... Stand outside and read about the history, um, you know, in a hopefully a non creepy stalkerish way. Well, I don't think buildings
0: are going to be too
1: troubled being stalked. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, agree I that personally the- would love to go s- see like the Villa Badran, which, you know, um, in Mahandasin, which I've never noticed apparently because it no longer looks like an adobe building on the outside, but I would love to see what it looks like now.
0: Yeah, I think that you're right. That the illustrations are very are very well chosen, are 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 very nice, and um, in a lot of cases, they give you a view of the building that it's like impossible to have from street level. Um, and I mean, both because the building has been changed and altered, but also because Some of the photos are taken, some of them are drawings, or some of them are taken from on high, and so you can kind of see the whole building and really appreciate its design, where if you're just sort of experiencing the city as someone walking through it, it's, it's hard to get that view. Um, I mean, both because the buildings have been altered, but also because like as a pedestrian, you don't have that view. And then because the city itself is so overwhelming that it's kind of hard to like
1: step back and look at things in this way sometimes. Um, Absolutely. I felt that way, particularly about the U.S. Embassy building, which I've been in. But uh, as I looked at the photograph of it, I couldn't place it because I I feel like me. I've been there, down on ground level, sort of trying to snake through all those cement barriers and get through nine thousand doors in order to do my whatever business inside. Uh, I've never, I never noticed what the building itself looked like.
0: Yeah, I mean that is one of the buildings in the book that I, I certainly do not consider to be very beautiful. And there's and there's more than one. And but but I think what's what's interesting about the book too is. I mean, it includes sort of like landmark, uh, quite famous buildings, but it includes a lot of sort of quote unquote ordinary buildings or buildings who you, they don't even know who the architect is and, and, and it's, and it's really a panorama of the whole built environment. Um, and, uh, and and it gives you a sense just of 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 what was being built and what all these different styles were and practices were, um, and you know without the kind of it has I think in some cases it there there is although the descriptions are quite technical it it it, it you do get a sense of what. Um, of some aesthetic judgment, but that is not the only criteria or the main criteria um for for including the buildings. It's really sort of a they they're included also for just being representative of certain kinds of built environments that were that were being made at certain times in the city
1: absolutely. I really appreciated seeing um schools in particular but also uh you know the gig, sort of gigantic housing projects of Nasser City and uh, and other yeah general overviews of how a neighborhood was constructed as well as things that were artistic and interesting uh, on their on their own as individual projects i mean like he says in the introduction he,
0: muhammad al-shahed says i hope that this book I think he says something like, "We'll make people see the city in a new light um, in addition to, you know, valuing sort of the memory and the history of the city a bit differently. And, and I think it really does. Um, and I don't know what sort of your takeaways from it were, but one of the ones for me was I sort of knew about... These moments in Cairo of like huge, uh, sort of changes in direction of the development of the city, um, like sort of huge amounts of, of construction and of demolition. And, and so one of them being like when the, you know, quote unquote modern European downtown, uh, began to be built. And there began to be this big dividing line between the historic medieval, sometimes called Islamic, core of Cairo, mm-hmm. which is hundreds if not thousands of years old, and this kind of very famous downtown neighborhood um, that that has all these, you know... Uh, cafes and theaters and, and beautiful apartment buildings. And, 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 and so, but, but it really, the book really emphasizes the fact that the entire modern history of Cairo has been one of such violent change and change <laughs> and change that people have embraced, like that, 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 that there's been a complete embrace of newness of new neighborhoods, right. new, new, new suburbs, new building styles. And this is the modern history of the city has, has been, and to have that spelled out for me was interesting. Like that, you know, it's not just this one rupture happening. It's a, it's a history of ruptures actually.
1: Right. Well, I think it's interesting. So some cities are sort of obsessed with their history and with staying in, in a particular aesthetic in a particular line, but he, there's, at one moment, he said the sanctity of design was always trumped by practical needs and changing tastes, and I think yeah, Cairo has been a city where constantly uh, changing, and and also the number of times he says that there were eclectic tastes, varied inspirations, um, uh, that downtown defies stylistic categorization. That some you know some people will call it sort of in a you know, European, but that downtown has so many different styles and inspirations that uh, he says hybridity defines most of its buildings. Yeah,
0: I was also and struck I, by that, that the, these like architects that were like Greek and Italian and Armenian and Syrian or or Egyptian, but had studied in like other, uh, you know, other countries and and had this very sort of cosmopolitan background and education and then they put together these buildings that are beautiful but that are like almost impossible to categorize by like an architectural school or style because they really kind of like mixed and used whatever thought they thought worked and looked good and met the needs of the market and um I, I was I was struck
1: by that too i was also saddened at the beginning so he he notes that a building must be more than 100 years old to be uh defined as uh, a historic monument um and and that it's not it's not really to the building owner's benefit for their for their building to be declared as a historic monument so that many people destroyed their buildings on purpose uh, so that they would not be declared historic monuments, In, you know. He noted, and one did partic- seem particularly terrible and scary and violent—that injecting acid into the into the structure of the building so that it would melt and fall apart. Yeah. I felt really kind of sad for the building. Well, there's a lot
0: to be sad. I mean, there's there's I think for people who are interested in the city, and I think that's a lot of people, there's a lot to be sad and angry about. I mean, the another famous case of this process of the hundred years deadline, which is the point at which your building might get listed, which is the point at which you will then kind of lose control of what you can do with it because of these quite rigid laws. And therefore, the owners try to damage it. The building that houses Café Riche, where Naguib Mahfouz famously like met with other writers on this sort of like landmark of downtown. When I was living in Cairo in the mid two thousands, at some point, the owner of that building, to make sure it wouldn't get listed, had workmen go up and just hammer off all the stone balconies. And it's really Mm. ugly. Like you can see now it's this facade and it's just had, you know, like, and really roughly, they just like smashed off all the balconies so that, and, you know, he did it in plain daylight, like along Talat Harb Street in downtown Cairo. Like nobody, no, nothing stopped them. I think maybe they had the excuse that the balconies were collapsing, uh, and so right. then they got rid of all of them, and uh, and that prevents it, I think, from being listed. Or at least that's what I was told was the reason behind like defacing this old building. Um, there's there's a lot of loss in this. Like
1: right. the book and I, chronicles a lot of loss. It's it's interesting though because <laughs> he he seems very almost on the edge of lamenting that Cairo did not have a great destruction like Europe had in World War II, because it's all of these incremental losses, um, rather than a big loss and then starting over. Uh, so it's a city with so many different timelines all at, the, all at once.
0: Yeah. I also think there's a sense in the book that like, it seems to me that from the 1970s on, there clearly is a heyday also of this, like, you know, how, how however dramatic, you know, construction and development and redevelopment may be, the the architecture from the early and mid-century is clearly of such architectural interest and value. And then when you get to, like, the 70s and 80s, like, really, there's not that many examples. Like, he does include things, you know, up until recent years, but they really don't seem to be of equal richness or interest. Um, And I think it does say something about... Uh, more and more of the construction of the city becoming done by amateurs uh, but not by by non-architects by contractors and engineers and then of course just by people sort of informally because you have that whole enormous expansion of informal neighborhoods uh, on the outskirts of Cairo which at this point I think can constitute the largest percentage of the built environment in Cairo actually and which I'm not dogging on. Like those, those are neighborhoods hmm. that exist for a reason. And that have, I think been for the most part, unfairly maligned, uh, the famous Ashwaiet or, or random neighborhoods or, or, or informal neighborhoods or slums or whatever people want to call them. Um, but I think in terms of like public buildings and apartment buildings and buildings where people do have the means to build, like, there's there hasn't been architecture of the same quality and innovation at all as there was uh in the thirties or forties or fifties or sixties. Like it's just you can see right. it. Well, of- and I,
1: I guess I would say anecdotally, I think there's maybe more uh, kind of customer focused architecture now. So where there is an architect involved, often them their their vision being overwhelmed by what the client wants. Or, yeah, or, as you say know. Um, you know people building without an architect entirely, but I think that was another sort of theme from his introduction uh the Both the lack of a central architectural archive in in Cairo about how Cairo was designed over time and sort of a general unawareness of of architects who built the city and And at first, when I read this, I thought, well, I probably don't know very many, you know, he said the only architect that Egyptian architect that most people can name is Hassan Fahmi, who had this sort of, you know, eclectic vision about rural architecture. And at first I thought, well, I probably can't name any architects at all. What are you talking about? But then as I did flip through, interestingly, the names that I could recognize were all European architects. Who had built inside Cairo, and I didn't know. And although I did recognize those names, I didn't recognize any of the names of of the Egyptian architects. And he, you know, he suggests that that the teaching of architecture currently in universities inside Egypt uh, makes it so people are unaware of their architectural predecessors. I mean, of course, people, uh, individual people, will do their own research to become aware, but that generally, by and large, people are on, uh that architects being trained in universities in Egypt are unaware of the history of Egyptian architecture architecture, and who came before them in order to build on their legacy or push back against their legacy. Um, and then I would also note that I just heard, you know, last time I was there that also, you know, that because of importing um texts has become so expensive in Cairo. Architectural magazines, for example, now are so ridiculously pricey to buy. So for contemporary architects to get a sense of what's going on in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, he calls it a blind spot with regards to to Egyptian modernism in particular, right? I mean, I'm not sure what the architecture curriculum in Egypt entails, but clearly one studies sort of what is considered to be, uh, historical heritage, but, but that kind of ends at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, which is strange because architecture is, 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 as a field is, is quite, I think, oriented towards like what's contemporary, what's cutting edge, um, and, uh, and and then i think and i think there's a lack of emphasis on what was locally produced maybe um i mean one of the other things this book tries to do is it's kind of broaden the awareness of like uh of modernism taking place in the global south modernism as a school of thought and aesthetics and practice um that there were like innovations and and styles being produced uh, in Cairo and, and elsewhere in the region. Um, and that it wasn't just a Western phenomenon or just defined by how it, it, it took place in the West.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a fascinating, particularly when it comes to this hybridity of, of building buildings in different styles. Um, and, and I, I thought it was so lovely, all these demolished villas in, um, in Giza and in Mahandasin, just you know, many of them had um a distinct aesthetic and artistic vision. Um and yeah, and that met, and that gone. made sense with the weather, made sense with the
0: kind of light, with the kind of temperature. Like often the adaptations are that. Sometimes they're adaptations to the lifestyle. So it's interesting to me that he said they had modernist aesthetics, but often they were actually very luxurious. Housing because mm. they were for like upper class people. So they were not functional in the way that like this style was often expected to be. So it had the kind of cleanness of, of, of modernism, but was actually still encapsulating a very like old bourgeois lifestyle, um, which is why you get these just like amazing apartments in Cairo, <laughs> like just these extraordinary, these beautifully finished, like so spacious and and so lovely uh, housing stock in, in, in
1: central Cairo.
0: Um,
1: Yeah. And there are all all sorts of wonderful stories um, uh, like the, the Villa Um Kulsum. I don't know if you um, read about that one, but that it was built in, in 1936 and that she lived there until her death in 1975. And although there had been talk about turning it into a museum her museum actually is elsewhere, and it was demolished in 1982. But that, so that building doesn't exist anymore. But that an Iraqi businessman made a a, a copy of that house, and he built it in Baghdad in the 1950s, and that has not been destroyed and still exists.
0: Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great story. Um, mm.
1: um, yeah, but it also speaks to sort of the you know um, you know. Uh, To what extent, I don't know, were some of these styles copied and and proliferated elsewhere?
0: Well, there are some examples in the book about these Egyptian architects that they did propose big buildings and big uh, development plans for other Arab capitals. I think they were, I mean, I think Egyptian expertise in many different fields, especially in the like 50s and 60s, was kind of in demand and exported across the region to some degree uh you know it wouldn't surprise me if if they if they were sort of like uh, uh you know pioneers as they were in so many other fields whether it was you know uh cinema or teaching you know that that that, that, that there was a lot of egyptian influence elsewhere uh i mean mm-hmm. the story about the um Sum house though is so is is just one of so many of these examples because the idea was to maybe preserve it and make it a museum and that didn't happen um as with so many sites uh, which which really should have been protected by the authorities and it's this combination of you know undervaluing of this kind of built environment with corruption and with real estate speculation also just with like i think a real lack of of understanding or 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 love for the city and and this gets into sort of i think the most right painful right. parts of when you like read and write about Cairo's modern history which is this just you know when 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 we were there recently what everybody was talking about was the the incredible destruction that has been wrought on a historic suburb of Cairo which is featured in the book which has he he says the the probably the second most you know biggest uh amount of of, of historically interesting buildings in the city, which is Heliopolis and, uh, and which has been, you know, com- which had, has been stripped of, I think it's nearly 400,000 square meters of green space in the last yes. year as the authorities with Z ze- with zero consulting with the local community, with just turning a, you know, complete deaf ear to like every expert and urban planner and, and an architect and and person who would be concerned and have expertise on this went and tore up all these like public green medians and trees and parks so that they could widen and build new like multi-lane giant freeways, which they want to serve traffic to this new administrative capital out in the desert, which is kind of president Sisi's dream, uh you know new new center of Cairo, which is supposed to be full of ministries and government buildings and embassies and you know, and they defaced this i mean who tears up trees in a
1: city like cairo well it, as but as exactly as you said it's it's somebody in power who doesn't care i mean so anecdotally, what I was told is that the guy who is, was in charge of, of making easier access from places like Abaseya to, to the new capital, so through Heliopolis, was that he personally does not like trees. And that personally at his own <laughs> village, he's removed trees because he considers them too much trouble to take care of, too much trouble upkeep. They they shed, they're terrible. He doesn't like trees personally. So, um. So he had this mandate um, make easy access, and he simply did not care if greenery was but, removed. But the other problem is that is that is that you have
0: a a governance structure and a city development structure that allows you to put such an enormous decision, such as whether there will be green spaces in a neighborhood, in the hands of one apparently like hate tree hating psychopath. Like why, <laughs> why, how can it be? This is not a pro- this is not the process by which such major decisions should be should be taken. And there was huge opposition to this and people couldn't stop it. There's just nothing to be right. done. And, right. and, and, and
1: I, I think and when similarly people met with, with him. Right. They they I mean, all, it's also very dangerous for people because you can no longer cross these roads as a pedestrian and there are not flyovers. And so there has also been an increase in pedestrian deaths because of it.
0: And stories about how people can't. There's no way to. The only way to exit your neighborhood now is to get onto one of these huge freeways and drive into the desert right. for half an hour because there's no longer <laughs> any way to take. You can only take a right, and the right only goes out. You know, for for sixty kilometers somewhere before you can turn around. I mean, it, it, it is such a scandal. And then the other thing, you know, the the neighborhood that this show is named after, Bulac, which which is has. Historically, but you know i mean quite historically quite a long time ago was like a industrial neighborhood on the sides of the port i mean had had you know on the sides of the river and had actually a little port and and then is is a mix of uh um there's a newspaper uh, headquarters. There's these skyscrapers, but there were also these low-income neighborhood in what was called the Masbido Triangle. And the last time I went to Cairo, the Masbido Triangle is gone. I mean, there there is just an, a nothingness in this in this huge area right in central Cairo. It's it, it's just evaporated. I mean, talk about things just evaporating. They're they're just gone. Um, and again, right. to build some like high-end, you know, development, which in the original plans was supposed to include housing and gardens and the option for residents to stay. And, and in the, in some of the latest images I've seen seems to be only skyscrapers. Uh, I bet you there's going to be no low-income housing. I bet you nobody who originally lived there is is, is going to actually be able to continue uh, living there. And, and, and again, there was huge opposition to this to this plan, but it went ahead anyway. Um, th- there's just... Right. And uh, it's,
1: right. Th- the I mean, it's, it's generally like, a, a, a problem of a authoritarian sort of rule. Although it's possible that also this sort of devaluation of architects and the role of architects in the city and the importance of architectural design that um, that Muhammad underlines in the introduction does play a role in sort of, you know, one guy saying, I'm going to redesign the city today. Here, let's make all the cars go this There's, way. It's a
0: devaluation it's a devaluation of all independent expertise across all domains mm-hmm. on the part of this like military dominated authoritarian regime which thinks that they know better than everybody else and and it's not just this this government i mean the the, the 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 this is there's a really long history in the governance of the city of cairo at least since the mubarak years uh of uh, these, like uh, big unilateral decisions being taken with very little consultation. Of this endless fantasy, which, which this book kind of puts into context of starting over again and again. So right, we don't right. just build a new neighborhood. We're just gonna we're gonna build like literally a new city, so, and 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 it's gonna be perfect, and it's gonna be under control, and it's gonna be clean, and there's not gonna be too many of these troublesome people there, and and the authorities keep. Doing this with like very limited success, like a lot of these sort of new desert cities and desert developments ha- have sort of never filled up or, or or taken on a economic and social life uh there's There's no investment in public transportation i mean. It, it, I, I I start to stutter because it just makes me so mad. <laughs> and and after t- and after 2011, after the uprising, there was for several years I attended this kind of like working group discussion that was all about Cairo's urban development, and it was like activists and academics and just members of the general public who were interested. It was hosted by an NGO in Cairo and. I used to go and every every time there would be a discussion of a different sort of aspect and experts would come in and give talks about traffic, about public space, you know, uh, about transportation and 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 people would share all these ideas and all these plans that they had for how to improve the city. And there's so many good ideas out there for how to improve the city, mm. and it feels mm. like the people who run the city always do the exact opposite of what <laughs> Of of what is you know has been scientifically proven around the world to be best practice in terms of the environment, in terms of transportation, in terms of uh, you know civic values, they will do the exact
1: opposite. And, And yeah, it is it is stunning the number of really amazing world class experts who exist in Cairo who could redesign the city in so many ways, whose expertise is not listened to at all. Not listened to at all because, because,
0: because it's ideological. It's, it's, you know, it's like the people who rule the city want a different city. They, they they can't seem to see what, how it works, uh, what it needs, what there is that's beautiful there. um, And, and this sort of endless, now expansion of like giant freeways, giant developments, you know, mega mm. malls, gated cities outside of the city. It, you know, it's, 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 a, it's on an inhuman scale and it is the opposite of what is uh, attractive and, and vibrant uh, and, and, and unique about Cairo. Uh, and, and it's, it's just, it's really maddening. Um, and, uh you know, I, and I'm happening saying- at an
1: absolutely ra- uh, amazingly rapid pace as well. The these uh, the new gated communities that went up around Cairo, I feel suddenly just exploded over the course of ten years. Nick, you blink and you would miss an an entirely new gated city go up,
0: and it's a different way of life. I mean, it's. It's it's a radically different way of living to live out there than to live anywhere in in central Cairo. Um, when I did my uh, my master's thesis, which was a while ago now, um, I, I wrote about uh, the image of Cairo in modern Egypt of modern Cairo in modern Egyptian literature, and so sort of starting from that divide that there was that I mentioned between medieval Cairo, and these new neighborhoods that were built, uh, you know, uh, between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, which is a divide that like Naguib Mahfouz writes about, or Yusuf Idris writes about um, Hmm. this. uh, And it sets up this kind of like modern versus traditional dichotomy in the city. But then by the time I was writing, the the divisions in the city were much more about the center versus the periphery and it was these gated these these gated cities uh these like escape from cairo cities right where it was explicitly right. marketed as leave the city behind and all its problems pollution harassment you know all these things and come live here and the other margins of the city, which was the informal neighborhoods, which were always, almost always talked about, you know, with a lot of disdain as, you know, breeding grounds for crime and terrorism and all these social problems, even though, like, by some estimates, a majority of the city's population lived there. So they weren't right. marginal. It's like you, you're you marginalizing what is actually the majority of the people in the, the city. center, Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're displacing, and 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 there are also like fun neighborhoods to visit, and that also have like a, a logic. Like they're built efficiently; they're built as efficiently as people can, under the circumstances. Mm. And and David Sims' books about right. Cairo yes. are, are very good at. I think one is called Understanding Cairo, um, and I can't remember what the other one. Are there very very good analyses of why like the density of these neighborhoods makes a lot of sense? And, uh, and yeah, there's things you can do to improve them, but actually there's a lot of things you could do to learn from them as opposed to like always insisting on
1: like having a bunch of McMansions out in the desert. Right. Exactly. That there, that there is a tremendous logic to those, those parts of the city. Yeah, because when
0: people build for themselves, like they do things that make sense to them. And and again, after the revolution, one of the things I remember that people did was because the highways that are built around Cairo purposely have no off and on ramps to those neighborhoods, because they want to kind of like deny their existence. And one of the many sort of like people taking things into their own hands moments that happened was there was a neighborhood that like built its own on ramp onto the freeway. Right
1: yeah the, the where the roads will and won't go, and where there is a point to turn around and where there is a point to cross is uh, are, are all tremendous issues of power inside the city, yeah well, how the city sees
0: itself, which of course is a question that comes up in literature a lot i mean Egyptian literature, I think one the building as a unit is a narrative mm. is a narrative setting that has been used from like Naguib Mahfouz to Alaa Swani to like a lot of writers right like just the residential unit as a narrative framework right um as and the, or, or or the alley uh and and then like the, it's a very urban literature like for, for the most part. i mean Cairo plays a disproportionate right. large place in it i think
1: yeah, absolutely. But interestingly, I mean, it sort of just as I began to think about it, because I was so persuaded by his argument that Egyptian architects have been uh, devalued. it It was hard for me to think of Egyptian novels where an architect is a protagonist. There are I mean, there are obviously some. Uh, Reem Basuni's novel, Mortal Designs, was the first one ca- that came to mind because it's a recent novel and it does have this um, architect who wants to be immortal um, as, as a protagonist. Um, <laughs> then there's apparently <clears throat> a Nagib Mahfouz play called Tarikh, Um in which there is an architect swindler who, who wants to get this old building and so that he can pull it down and make a factory. Hmm. Which I found interesting. And then one of my really favorite um literary passages is from Tawfi al-Hakim's uh, The Prison of Life. Um I always love it when tofi al-Hakim complains about his father. And I think one of his father's core obsessions was was building and unbuilding, oh. and was, think- was thinking himself an architect. Um, and and first, I think it started with, with an outbuilding so, for horses. So are you, are you going to read from that? Yes, I would love to read from The Prison of Life by, by Tafi Al-Hakim. Building and demolition in our house became something natural and continuous, like eating and drinking. For months, for years, it never stopped for my father had decided to be his own architect, contractor, and master of works. He hired masons, carpenters, and blacksmiths, and would tell them, cut a new passage here, pull down that wall over there, block this window here, fit a door over there. No sooner had they done what he commanded than it was found that the door opened not onto the hall, but onto the water closet, and that the wall had been removed, merged the kitchen with the lounge, and so on, and so on. My father would then command them to block what they had opened and rebuild what they'd demolished. Next, he would turn to another wall and order it torn down, only to find that it supported the ceiling of another room, which was now sagging, so there was more rebuilding. All along, he was absolutely determined to rely on himself and his own expertise and not to bring in an architect.' I was not only an observer at what was going on, but also a victim incommoded by having to sleep for a long time in rooms of which the windows had been ripped out and replaced by blankets. I would ask my father, why don't you employ an architect to take charge of all this and give yourself a rest? He would answer mockingly, you're a fool. Does anybody but a fool employ an architect? What will he do but draw on a blue paper a few elegant lines with a ruler and a compass and say, here's a room, there's a hall? What he will say, we already know. We are, by far, the best judges of what we want. The ultimate result was quite simply that masons, carpenters, and painters became permanent residents with us. They arrogated to themselves a room near the garden gate where they settled, stayed overnight, held parties, and received immediate members of the family, kinsmen, and friends as guests. From the house, a regular supply of coffee and tea and lunches and dinners was sent down. They even acquired a voice in what was cooked and presented them day by day. They would say, we're tired of malachia and okra, make us some kushari today. Sometimes they would suggest, pickle us some cucumbers and green peppers, and they would even prescribe the way they liked the pickling to be done and the ingredients to be mixed. And in a corner of the garden, they planted radishes and leeks and watercress. They thoroughly enjoyed this comfortable life. What with rooms minus walls, windows minus glass, and hammering and demolition taking place above our heads in the new story, my younger brother and I found life unbearable. Yet when I asked the workmen when the work was to be finished, they replied, Never. It's like Guha's water wheel. What we build in the morning, we demolish in the afternoon. It's the bay's orders.
0: I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so really the problem is just egomania. At the root, at well, the root, perhaps <laughs> of a lot of of a lot of the ur- a
1: lot of the urban issues we're discussing. Well, it's funny because all elsewhere in that in that memoir, he talks about a government minister visiting his father and being so impressed with what an amazing architect his father was, and being like won over by the the father's uh, you know assertion that there's no need for architects; one can just you know scribble one's own ideas. Great, so. I, I think, you know, I feel like maybe we should blame everything on Taufi hakims father. Yeah. <laughs> it's true that, to me that this this passage. Yeah. To me, that passage represents a lot of this kind of tearing down and building up and tearing down and building up without taking a moment to think, wait, what's the result of this going to be? Yeah. And also that there's this,
0: there's this thin line between, I mean, there, there is a lot of. Adaptation of the built environment, just like there's adaptation of everything in Cairo that has quite a bit of charm, right? That's hmm. you know, people just making the space work for them in one way or another. uh That's that's either quite creative or quite resourceful, or you know, or or actually, or makes sense, you know, in their in their context. And it's sort of hard to draw the line between that and then. When it shades into, you know, choices that are actually, um, I mean, often like damaging to the shared space, right? Like, right, that, that right. encroach well, think, on right. everyone's quality of life, that encroach on space that should be shared and regulated in a way that makes for the best urban experience for everyone and and that and that are and that are ugly. I mean, I know it's hard to talk about like beauty and ugliness, but I do I think one of the reasons I have such so strong feelings about issues like this city and its spaces is that I think everyone has a right to beauty in their life actually. And I think it's a it's a people are robbed of absolutely available beauty that they could have in their lives. And and that they deserve to have. Um, and it makes right. me
1: furious. <laughs> well, I think sort of I think I'm borrowing out of David Sims' book, Understanding Cairo, that you know, there are certain ways of building that are are building on knowledge that is, you know, has been put together over centuries. But then when you're making these entirely new spaces and neither you're breaking with the knowledge of, of centuries. And you're also not not bringing in any any architect. <laughs> uh, I think this is like a point of disaster. Yeah, and it's just pastiche. It's 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 empty. Uh,
0: you know, it's literally empty in the sense that a lot of the nuke uh, uh, in a city where there's a housing shortage, there's a ton of empty housing stock of things that are built as pure investments and then left right. to sit to appreciate for decades sometimes um and and uh and, and 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 don't add you know in any way uh to the to the overall to the public good um there's um there's a, there's a book I'd mentioned in like in this context of like construction and so on um when I uh when I was writing about Cairo I met and wrote about the work of, of Hamdi Abu Gulayl, um who hmm. had written a book about this, the the informal or slum neighborhood of Mancheyat Nasser called Thieves in Retirement, um, which was a really good uh kind of very darkly funny uh account of being uh he comes from he's 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 a Bedouin origin he comes from outside of cairo of of being like a newcomer in one of these like uh you know peripheral neighborhoods um and then he wrote another book called il fail in arabic and i guess a dog without a tail in the english translation um, yes. Specifically mm-hmm. about his experience being a construction worker, and and sort of participating in making this this in this constant process of like, uh, you know, cha- changing the face of the city as one of its like new and kind of marginalized arrivals. And and I and I think both both books are are, are really quite good and speak to, uh you know, 21st century Cairo <laughs> to um, to this experience of not being rooted and of everything changing really fast and of nobody belonging in the city.
1: Right. And now you'll have to remind me of the, the does the, the 1992 earthquake happen in one of them? I think the residents of
0: are the residents of Manshiet Nasser? No, I think because they they were they were factory workers, and that's where the name of that neighborhood mm. comes from. Uh, it may be referenced because the one in the, about his time as a construction worker is kind of like short stories. But I don't remember mm-hmm. it featuring prominently in either. The first one is sort of about, again, this particular building and its residents and this family and the neighborhood and the street and so on. Um, and uh, and the second is more like interlinking short stories about different things that happen as he works on the construction crews around Cairo. Um and uh, and I remember him saying to me when I like interviewed him and talked to him, it uh, was, was like, oh, we're all, like everyone's marginalized now. There is no center to the city.
1: Mm. Right. Well, it's funny because it, it, if there were a, a center in the terms of center of power, the center is outside of, it's all these places outside of the city for the most part. Yeah, no, the center wants to
0: escape. The center wants to right. be as as removed as possible um from from the real i mean you know the place where the arab spring broke out is geographically one of the centers of Cairo. It's it's a square with all these main arteries leading into it. It's a place that's accessible from like all the historic neighborhoods of Cairo. It's it's a place that you could reach on foot. Uh this this new administrative capital that they're building is is very is very much the opposite of that.
1: Uh, right. For- yeah no I remember the first time somebody suggested that I meet them at a place called downtown which is on road 90 the same road that the American University the New American University in Cairo buildings at which is one of the new uh buildings that is featured in Muhammad's book and this it's kind of a, this mall complex called downtown has like here's like the mini Cairo tower here's the mini uh Nile River it's like a a miniaturized Are you replica of yeah yeah it, it, i mean you can go to a poll oh wow it's a miniaturized replica of downtown. Yeah, That's if you ever want to go, the gigantic golf ball on top. Oh wow!
0: I mean the the advertising campaigns and the discourse and the names of these developments outside of Cairo have been, you know, sources of ironic amusement and, 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 and also, you know, probably, you know, and, and, and scholarly deconstruction for quite some time. And they do, they are like extremely revealing, um, of the paranoias and aspirations and, and of,
1: of a certain Yeah, my favorite of is New Giza, um, because they, they, one of the billboards had some sort of reference to eternity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so moved to New Giza. <laughs> you too will become a pharaoh and live on in perpetuity oh my gosh that's hilarious right and it's 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 funny too because you know of course there are gated communities in in cities around the world right it's a phenomenon that happens there are many gated yeah. communities in cities um particularly more urban cities like detroit uh, I, I okay i don't know it statistically but that's where i've noticed more people wanting to escape uh, cities with problems and moving outside of them um, but in Cairo, like so many things, this just seemed to take place on absolute steroids with these enormous billboards everywhere and these totally over the top names and advertisements and and I, I I'm unfortunately not going to remember the numbers on this but somebody did tell me that they you know uh, uh, you know friends. Get called often to be solicited to to buy into these um, mm. these gated communities, and th- that somebody had said that oh, I can't remember, but it, the number was like insane that there are like two hundred or something where you can buy properties. That this real estate agent had had listings in multiple hundreds of different gated communities outside of Cairo.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I believe that. I mean, it seems like you you can't... uh, I mean, there's just questions of transportation. There's questions of water. Like, I feel like some of the people listening to this are going to say, you know come on, traffic is terrible. Like there are reasons why we want to go out and live somewhere with a garden where the air is clean or where it's quieter or, you know, that that model is like been, you know, commercially appealing around the world uh, and, uh, and that we're, you know, dismissing those aspirations. And I'm not actually, but I really believe that the way that you achieve clean air and green spaces and you know calm and all these things that are of value in the urban environment as well as others, like you know having being able to walk to commercial spaces and and having sort of like the access to so many services and to so much entertainment and culture that a city can provide, the way that you achieve that is not to prior is not to drive the 45 minutes out of the city to some like newly built development it's to you know have a vision for development of the city core and that's what I think is missing and I think also for the like for the shared narrative of 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 a city, like, I, I wonder what kind of literature this, these, these, this new, this new environment will produce. Like,
1: right. This- well, certainly there's Utopia by Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq, you know, which is set in 2020, <laughs> Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq passed a, a few years ago now, but the, his novel, which maybe was from, well, anyway, um, the early part of this century, the 21st, it's said in 2023 and it's supposed to be this dark future mm. where the wealthy egyptians living in gated communities oh i read um, it are, right right who they they were protected by american um army or marines or something and they can Uh, kill anybody they want when they go outside of their compounds pretty much with with impunity so they're not supposed to go outside of their compounds because it's uh it's not safe for them to go out into the rest of cairo where the where the regular people live but these two do sneak out in order to uh, you know to entertain themselves to kill somebody and bring back i believe a part of their body Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so there is that, I mean, you know, I mean, it's an of- exaggerated version,
0: but honestly, this reality in which you drive and you drive down these six lane highways that know that are built with such utter contempt for the like miserable little pedestrian who might need to cross them. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this, this vision that is so like deeply, classist and undemocratic by privileging the automobile over the human being so much in a city where the majority of the people still do not own a car. Like, you wouldn't know it right. looking at the traffic in Cairo, but the majority of Cairo residents still are not car owners. Uh, right. Like, like it, it, it's just, it is, it's so contemptuous of the residents of the city. And so this, this guy just takes it further, but it's not that wild. I mean, it's wild, like where I don't yeah. expect they're going to start hunting.
1: But I think like much, I should, of, I should, it, <laughs> much of what's called dystopian fiction that's set in Cairo, it's more of a near future vision, uh, 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 exaggerated vision of things that are happening right now. So, yes, um, as far as I know, the U.S. Army has not been deployed to protect Uh, Egypt's, um, gated communities. And, and certainly I don't think that you can go kill people with impunity, but, but absolutely there is a different level of privilege. If you, for instance, hit someone with your car and they died versus if they came into your gated community.
0: Um, Well, I could go on and on talking about this (laughs) maddening city, but is, I think, is there anything else that you want to add
1: before we remind people of a few things here at the end? No, I don't think so. I, but I don't think that Ahmed Khalid Taufit mentioned in Utopia that there was a particular architect who designed these uh, gated communities. So that was sort of made invisible in that. Mm. Yeah, it's like the things, the spaces just spring up, right? Right. It's like they're just mm-hmm. always been there,
0: and this amnesia about what was there before. I, I mean, I, I will say it to end. I think this is really a, a a lovely book to get back to to Cairo since 1900, and that I think you know it's 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 a great resource. It's a great resource for specialists and for lay people, um, and it, you know kind of does a Sisyphian task because one does feel like there's just no stopping so many of these changes um some of which are, are 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 so damaging but but of of trying to preserve uh some of this memory to honor both all the, Individuals who contributed who 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 made things and who are so quickly forgotten um and and to show kind of the history of this development so that what our present is doesn't just feel like inevitable and and this is how it has to be, and this is how it's always been like no there's 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 a development and there are other options there are other
1: avenues like right a built environment right. could be different. Right. Yeah. No. Um. Nadir Mansour has written about this book Cairo since 1900, and also Humphrey and Leslie's A Field Guide to Street Names of Central Cairo as an act of preservation in themselves.
0: And what I like is this preservation without actually being particularly nostalgic. It, right. It's just like this is our history, and we deserve to know it. It's not, you know, this kind of. Uh,
1: you know, it's not triumphalist. W- it's not nationalist. It's it's right much and, more
0: and it's not also like oh the golden days of you know this particular time and place was perfection, which you know ten, tends to be in the first half of the twentieth century. And there's a lot of problematic things about kind of romanticizing that too. Uh, no, I, th- I think it strikes a, a really a really thoughtful and it and it and it looks wonderful and. I want my copy, and then I want to, and then I want to be in Cairo with it and I want to go around. Um uh, okay, so before we before we wrap up, I should remind people uh if you like the show, please rate the show. Subscribe on one of the many platforms where you can subscribe, uh share it with your friends. Um also uh, check out Arab Lit Quarterly, Marsha's fantastic magazine of Arabic literature in translation, and also check out the other shows on the Sot Network, uh, which are all in Arabic and which are on all sorts of topics, ranging from music to feminism to politics, uh, and and are really excellent. Um, and I think I'm done with reminders.
1: Is that <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that wraps it up. Yeah. All right. Well, it was great talking okay. to you. Lovely talking to you too. Okay. Bye-bye everyone. Bye.